What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture you name it, we analyze, we discuss it, we disseminate all cool, new, interesting, fun, old, archaic, and wonderful ideas. And I, if you cannot tell, dear Midnight Myth listeners, am very excited to be here today. This is going to be part two to our episode last week, Too Many Notes, We're going to continue to talk about the role of music and the role that music has played and how it has sort of intertwined itself in particular with contemporary or maybe not so contemporary cinema. And I am bursting out of the seams. I have rays coming out of me almost as if I'm standing on a roof and I am made of a golden substance and that I might be immortal like a divine being that I should proudly exclaim in front of all of you, which I say that metaphorically because this is a podcast. Nobody is in front of me but my dear and beautiful wife, Laurel. I am a golden god. What Derek's really trying to say here is that he digs music. I dig music, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. We might want to work on those last words. If you can't tell from the banter here at the beginning, uh, we are going to talk about the 2000 uh, Cameron Crowe film, Almost Famous. And I'm just as excited as you are, Derek, because this is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, Wait, hold on. I didn't realize in all the research that I did to prepare myself for this, it came out in 2000. I kind of forgot that. That was the year it came out? Yeah. Y2K, man. God damn. There was a good chunk of movies happening in the late 90s, early 2000s. Sorry. Absolutely. It's a it's a weird and interesting and kind of wonderful time for cinema and television alike. Um, I'm again, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. This is one that has been really near and dear to my heart since I was a teenager. Um, And I think we're going to have some interesting conversations about it tonight and what we can learn, especially segueing out of last week's conversation about the movie Amadeus uh, from 1984 something that was, uh, it's a very different aesthetic uh, philosophy that's being sort of touted in that movie than what we see in Almost Famous, but I think in many ways they do go hand in hand as we watch uh, the sort of evolution of music movies, which have become their own uh, sort of genre. We can see some of the same themes being harped upon, themes of genius, 
themes of excess, themes of virtue, and themes of celebrity versus reality. Uh, so I'm excited to dig into some more of those themes tonight and discuss a movie that means a whole lot to me. Totally. We talked last week about Mozart as the rise of the independent secular musician who was doing something completely innovative and different and groundbreaking. We talked about him as a representation of the Dionysian spirit, as a reactionary to Enlightenment, Apollyon, so Socratic, highly reasoned way of looking at the world. Now we flash forward a couple of centuries and here the independent secular musician is king. Here we are living in the era of rock and roll and the era of music as a very big multi-million, multi-billion sometimes dollar industry and an industry of cool. And we're going to be discussing these ideas within this movie and dissecting them through our typical Midnight Myth lens. And I'd like to start off in saying... Rock and roll isn't a very important genre for me. And I use that term rock and roll in the broadest possible brushstroke I could. Fair. Any kind of music that has a distorted guitar, uh, someone pounding on the drums and a vocalist just going way over the top. Um, I would consider rock and roll in the almost famous Ian sense. And I'm really excited to talk about the genre of music that's meant the most to me, how it's related to the themes of this movie, and my own personal journey of a musician, because I have told you all before, Midnight Myth listeners, I am a drummer or at least a wannabe drummer and tried to make a career as a successful drummer musician in my late teens, early 20s. That did fail. And I'm interested in reflecting on my experiences in music at the this point in my journey, now approaching middle age as a homeowner, husband, professional podcaster, who is so fucking uncool. And <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about it. Before we dig too deep, because I'm really ready to go here, I uh, hear a lot of people out there, Laurel, have been dialoguing with us, have been reaching us. For those listening that can't reach us or want to reach us, how can they? Oh, it's such an exciting time to be the Midnight Myth right now uh, because we are just getting so much love and so much meaningful engagement from our fans, especially on social media. And if you are someone out there who has been listening and you want to get in touch or you want to have a conversation, we're always here to listen, especially if you have recommendations for episodes in the future if you have things that you think that we missed in an earlier episode and you want to hear more about, uh, we want to hear that from you. So best place to find us is on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. Uh, we're also on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. There's a contact form on the website if you want to send us something lengthier or if you want to sign up for our email list, check out our blog, see some of our sources and learn more about the podcast and how you can support us. Speaking of ways to support us, one of those ways is on Patreon, which is a system where you can support us for a small monthly donation, a small monthly pledge that helps us to continue to make this podcast for you for free. Uh, you can give as little as a dollar a month or as much as you want to give, and each level comes with different perks. So some of those are going to be discounts on the merch store, shout outs on the air, 
or even a bonus episode every month. So we love our Patreon supporters. We're so grateful for those of you who are already supporting us. And if you have the extra change and would consider throwing it our way, we'd be eternally grateful. I'd just say, uh, if you also have the extra dollars and want to give us a large amount of money, I'd be grateful for that too. Oh, no gift is too small. No gift is too large, as we always say. Uh, The other way you can support us is by buying merch. Uh, That's extremely meaningful to us because it means that you want to wear it shirt that says Midnight Myth and you want all your friends to know that you listen to the Midnight Myth. Um, And our merch store is also located on our website. If you just hit shop or you can go to teespring.com slash Midnight Myth. Tons of teas, totes, uh, cell phone cases, stickers, anything you can imagine for both the Midnight Myth and the Wheel of Ka, which is our Dark Tower Stephen King side podcast with Derek and Steve. Also something that is doing really well and we're having a lot of fun sharing with all of you. Also, we have a really cool, fun idea for a Halloween episode. I can't wait to say more once all of the details are smoothed out. And uh, can I just like pull the rabbit out of the hat or pull the, the, the curtain behind Oz and say, we're planning a dual pod with a good friend. Can I say that right now? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So our amazing friend M at the podcast Verbal Diorama or Diorama, I think, I say diorama because I'm from Texas, but Emma's British. I think it's diorama. Anyway, we're not British. It's a British podcast. Em is going to be our first podcast guest. We're still working out the details, but we cannot wait to bring her onto the podcast and share her amazing insights, her amazing humor, her amazing intelligence. We're really excited about this. More to come once we have all of the details smoothed out. Um, But this is really exciting. Our first ever podcast guest, and we can't be more grateful, humbled, and happy that it's M. And if you guys out there are listening to us, please download Verbal Diorama. It's a great podcast. You will enjoy it. Yeah, you will absolutely love it. I guarantee you if you like The Midnight Myth, you'll like that podcast. Absolutely. Anyway, that's a lot of shit. So let's on with the show, as they say. Sure. Let us, uh, should we, since this movie came out in 2000, do a briefest of briefest of recaps? Yeah, I think you're the expert at that. So uh, take it away, Derek. All right. So this movie is about a main character, William. He is an academically gifted child who skips two grades. We see him at the age of 11, but he's in middle school or maybe the first grade of high school. I don't remember. William has an older sister and a mother. The mother is an academic philosopher, professor type who is somewhat domineering and controlling, which drives his older sister away. Her older sister is obsessed with rock and roll and leaves to go become a stewardess. She leaves all of her records to William and he listens to a song by the the who with a candle lit and she leaves him with the promise one day you'll be cool. He then grows up, I should say grow up, he becomes 15 and is ready to graduate high school and he gets the opportunity to write for a magazine with another character played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. He gets to do a 3,000 word essay on Black Sabbath. In his adventures, he gets to meet the band Stillwater and Stillwater's Band-Aid Penny Lane. He instantly is drawn to Penny Lane and to Stillwater that gets a job with Rolling Stone to follow Stillwater on tour. Penny Lane, the Band-Aid, and her group of Band-Aids are traveling with him, and they go across the country. William is often frustrated by trying to get an interview with the lead guitarist, Russell, and he is trying to report on the band honestly, but does get a little overwhelmed. 
At the end of this, it culminates thematically with them on an airplane, pummeling to their death where the bandmates, including William, start speaking their truth. Oh, and prior to that, Penny Lane almost kills herself from a Quaalude overdose when she, who is in love with Russell, realizes that Russell cares about his actual girlfriend more than Penny Lane. This all culminates with William finally re-encountering his sister after the band Stillwater denies all of the facts in his article for Rolling Stone, and his sister offers an adventure as a stewardess. She can fly him anywhere, and he chooses to go home. There, uh, William's mother and his sister reunite, and William just goes to bed. Russell, meanwhile, tries to reconnect with Penny Lane, who lives in the same city as William, calls Penny Lane and says, let's say all the things we haven't said to each other. She gives him her address, which, whoops, turns out it's William's address. Russell and William reconnect. Russell admits that he called Rolling Stone and confessed that everything in the article was true. And Russell and William finally get to have the interview that William long sought after. Movie. Wonderful recap. You know, something that strikes me as you were uh, explaining all the things that happened in that movie is that the middle of the movie, the second act, is not a whole lot of plot per se, because a lot of those uh, elements didn't make it into the briefest of briefest recaps, but it is full of uh, just endearing, specific, and powerful thematic moments. You know, this isn't a movie where that many things happen. This is a movie where moments are prioritized, where a moment of a bunch of people who feel this sort of tense anxiety about each other, who aren't sure what they mean to each other, can connect authentically over an Elton John song. The music really takes center stage and all of the soundtracking, whether it's original music by Stillwater or uh, songs by Led Zeppelin and Elton John that we love and know and elicit some kind of emotion in us. And through that, we can connect to the character's state of mind. So it's really unique in the way that it does that. Great. Well, I think one way I want to um, segue the conversation, kind of similar to how we did Too Many Notes, we started um, after the recap in Too Many Notes to discuss the era and time that produced classical music. So this movie takes place, is, I think it's 1974. Is 1973. 1973. Yeah, into okay. 1974. So it starts in a particular era. It grounds it in a time place in American history. And I think it's worth sort of briefly understanding the history of rock and roll, um, how music got to the point where it did in 1973, and what was genuinely happening in the music industry of that time, which, doing some cursory research... Turns out it's a very complex subject. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of debate over what music history means, about what it means for the time, about how does the music shape the time, or does the times shape the music, and this sort of interplay between culture, individual artists, and a booming rock and roll industry. But uh, most music historians will put the origin of rock and roll to about the 1940s, 1950s. The phenomenon that was happening was that for the very first time, we started seeing uh, music mixing under racial lines. So the jazz and blues movements started mixing with the country and folk movements. And these we can understand specifically as racialized music um, movements, where jazz and blue was coming out of the African-American and the country folk um, was coming out of the, the white peoples. 
Yeah, exactly. So we see an increase of urbanization happening during this time, which means more people were living together and there was a cultural exchange and some might even say cultural appropriation or cultural theft of uh, intellectual property um, and have strong arguments for that. But what we saw is the blending of these American movie musical genres. And out of that, what emerged was rock and roll. Um, rock and roll is largely accredited to its major popularity to one person. We call him the king. Yep. His name is Elvis Presley and certainly a complex and not easy person to understand. However, Elvis was responsible for the coast-to-coast -coast spread and then the international fame of rock and roll music. Now, flash forward another decade, and then we get to the countercultural revolution of the 1960s. And this was a period in time in which a generation of young people trained in postmodernist education won out and started questioning the assumptions of modernity. And one of the questions that they had was the war against communism manifested in the Vietnam War. And what we saw was an explosion of different types of rock and roll, um, largely emanating from the United Kingdom. So largely coming from bands such as the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, but also in America as well. And there was this movement linked directly to the music that was trying to bring an end to the Vietnam War. It was trying to stop this war from happening. And by virtue of that, trying to stop war happening altogether. And this was a huge romanticized piece of American history. And it's one that is still hotly debated and contested. I mean, just for example, Laurel and I were just spending time with my parents and my father and I were debating the relevance of the countercultural revolution where my father was like, no, it meant nothing. I was there. Right. It, There's all these questions because when you're in it, you feel like you're making a difference. You feel like you're changing the world, but we can look back at the 1960s. We can look back at flower power. We can look back at the beat poets and the beatniks and say, okay, are we in a better place now? Was there truly a, a cultural change that, uh, that was, uh, that came out of this or not? And what are we doing now that will provide cultural change for the future? It's an amazing question to ask. Sure. And to be fair, we are doing this most simplest of terms in terms of this very complicated history. Oh my God, absolutely. We're, and we're going briefly to, so we can get to the movie. Um, suffice to say, by 1973, the Vietnam War was over. Some had, uh, we see the character Lester say, hey, it's over, we won the war meaning that they stopped Vietnam, the cultural revolution was over, but yet this industry of rock and roll was continuing to go on. Now, rock and roll as we know it was radically changing in this period of time. There were new bands coming out in the 70s. You start seeing the emergence of a new form of dance music called disco that was becoming popular. And this is also just at the edge of when punk really starts to emerge too. So we're in this really weird kind of uh, a moment in time for rock and roll where the classic rock is starting to fade. Lester puts, uh, you know, his finger on the pulse, really. He, he's like, we're really in the last gasp. We're in the death rattle of rock and roll. But of course, he doesn't know that punk is about to come. He doesn't know, you know, what the future holds. So there's a really uh, complex and, and interesting history right here in this 
particular moment in 1973. Yeah, and well, punk was largely in the underground. You know, the, yeah. the, the next movement that was about to come that was going to have a big mainstream push in rock and roll was metal. Right. And the, the lying down of metal with bands like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin that were going to transition. And then in the 80s, metal was huge with bands like Metallica and Guns N' Roses. Um, so that was the next big industry push. Punk was still there, but bubbling under the surface. Exactly. Um, but you're absolutely right. But what Lester is saying is that he's admitting that there is an era of music and time that was the counterculture and that this era is winding down and coming to a close. Similar to classical music, you look back at these eras and you put the same term, classic, in front of it. Yeah, Except classic rock. Call it classic rock. Harkening back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, saying that there are these gods, there is this period of time with these mighty giants that are going to live on forever that created this cultural movement, and that you have these bands and these individuals from John Lennon to Jimi Hendrix to Janis Joplin that were really you know, breaking new ground, doing something aesthetically different, forging an industry that wasn't there, that tapped directly into the pulse of the people, and also linked it to broader themes such as geopolitical relationships, to what is the role of a person, to understanding how to love and care and kind for each other. And Lester, having lived through that, realized correctly as a rock journalist that it was changing, that it was not going to be the same, that it was going to be very soon that people are going to look back and say, that was the classics. Yeah. You know, that time when, you know, Hey Jude was new, that time, that time is ended and now it's transitioning into something else. And that transition period is where Stillwater fits. Stillwater fits in between the old and the new. They're not fighting the war. Uh, they're not trying to bring about flower power. They're trying to make their living as creative, independent musicians and the cause that united the counterculture has and is fizzling. Yeah. So it's like, what are we really, what is Stillwater really saying? What is Stillwater really contributing to the greater conversation that rock and roll started? Is Stillwater carrying the torch or is Stillwater just keeping the embers alive? And the next generation after the counterculture, is it still a counterculture or is it now just culture? Right. And it's a big conflict that Lester is trying to teach William that, hey, this is now a new culture. It's now an industry of cool. An industry of cool. It doesn't mean anything. And what it means has changed. And it, what has replaced it is something more trite, is something less honest, is something a little more disingenuous. And if you're going to cover it, the only way to speak about it is to speak to it with unmerciful, ruthless, brutal honesty. Yeah. I really appreciate this uh, background here on the history of rock and roll and talking especially about Lester Bangs, who, real guy, based on this real uh, figure who was the editor of Cream Magazine, who did write for Rolling Stone and who eventually left California and moved to Detroit where he thought the last bastion of hope for rock and roll lived. And that's where he died of an accidental overdose only a couple years after the events of this movie take place. I think he was, uh, you know, in his 30s when this happened. Um, but the things that he brings to the table are this conversation about cool. He introduces that to William's mindset, to... Uh, sort of infiltrate this rock and roll lifestyle 
conscious and aware that an industry is being created around cool. And what is important to uh, understand about cool is how deeply tied it is with the history of rock and roll. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about how cool developed and the challenge of talking about cool is that there is no uniform single concept of cool. I can say cool, I say cool all the time, right? Yeah, that's you say cool. something, yeah. Do you want to go and get a drink later? Cool. I'll if, do that. If the Eagles win today, that'd be cool. That'd be very cool. Um, there is such a fluidity, there is such a mutability of cool. It can be used to describe a way of life. It can be used to describe the temperature outside. It can be used to describe an attitude or a style of clothing. The only thing that's really agreed upon is that it's generally positive. You want to be considered cool. You want cool to be applied to you. But when we look back at the history of cool, especially in the U.S., especially in North America, because there's such a wide uh, you know, breadth to this that it's really hard to talk about a global understanding of cool, but it goes back, similar to rock and roll, to these uh, sort of racial conversations. I want to read a quote from a book by Marlene Kim Connor called What is Cool? Understanding Black Manhood in America. She says, quote, African captives brought to this country had to internalize their emotions, and this internalization became the beginning of cool. The repression of natural emotions is one of the first characteristics of being cool. As the need to survive ebbed, black men faced the need to define an achievable manhood, and cool became a system that serves many purposes. The white perception of cool is narrow and distorted, with cool often perceived merely as style or arrogance, rather than a way to achieve respect, end quote. So I think what's most important about what she's saying here is that mm. cool is a survival mechanism, at least in the black communities as it emerged. The anger and the fear and the vulnerability felt by communities that were ripped from their homelands and forced into slavery, and later by the descendants of those slaves who had to walk into recently desegregated schools, people who have had to fear you know, being uh, the subject of discrimination on the street by neighbors or by policemen, had to internalize cool, had to find a way of... Uh, sublimating those emotions rather than releasing them authentically because releasing them authentically would put your life in danger. And just like rock and roll, once those lines started to be blurred, once in, uh, the urbanization increases, once white people get their hands on this uh, sort of uh, detached, ironic demeanor, it becomes a product. It becomes something that is widespread, that is desirable, that is seen as good and something that you want to strive for, even though it's being uh, you know, transformed from this thing that was once part of a very specific community. Wow. Okay. That's a huge point there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, it's really interesting and I think important for us to think about too going into this movie about the last gasp of rock and roll which doesn't really contain a single person of color. Uh it's just something I want to keep in sort of the back uh, of our minds as we think about the history of rock and roll. Um but kind of moving forward into how almost famous defines cool uh, there is another book by uh, a couple of writers named Dick Pounton and David Robbins who uh, actually set out the four pillars of cool as they define them in this sort of uh, scholastic work trying to understand cool. And the pillars they put out are detachment, 
So, you know, removing yourself from vulnerability, from feeling, from mainstream society. Uh, narcissism, not necessarily just vanity, but a sense that yourself and your self-interest is the most important thing to put forward. Irony, which I think we can all understand. You're not willing to put out your authentic emotions. You're more willing to say something that is just around the bush of what you mean. And hedonism. So uh, willing to indulge in excess. Uh, as they quote this, it was 1970s cool was epitomized by the quote, flight from feeling, from the messiness of real intimacy into the world of the easy lay, the casual divorce, and non-possessive relationships, end quote. So I think we can absolutely recognize that in a lot of the characters of Almost Famous. Yeah, a lot of uh, interesting points there. Thank you for sharing that. You know, one thing that I my just personal meditations on cool is that it's an always, it's a relational experience. Something is only cool when compared to another thing that is either not as cool or not cool at all. So it's only cool in relation to another object. So when you're in a group of people and someone goes, wow, that person is cool. The, the, the natural outgrowth epistemologically is that there are others not cool by which you are comparing this one object to. Yeah. When I say it'd be cool if the Eagles win the Super Bowl, um, there's certainly the sense of irony and detachment because it'd be a lot bigger than cool. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, in relation to them not winning the Super Bowl, which would be uncool if they don't win the Super Bowl. So there's always this relationship of describing cool by its non-opposite. So what we see in Almost Famous in terms of its meditation on coolness is that we know William's not cool because we see Russell. We know that, uh, com compare Russell to the lead singer of the band, I forget his name. Jeff Beebe. Jeff Beebe. Jeff Beebe is not cool. Not cool. At all. He's whiny, he's pretentious, he's, you know, he wants to be incendiary too. Like, so, like, he is, you know, totally uncool. We know that um, in the family dynamics, we know that uh, William's older sister is cool and his mother is not cool yeah. because there's a relationship by which you can define the cool to the not cool. When you couple that with the detachment, irony, narcissism, and hedonism, you absolutely see that inside the characters who are fighting the hardest to be cool, such as Russell, who wants to be so freaking cool that he wants to be cheered as a golden god. And then to the original point, you know, it is just a fact of American history that it hasn't really figured out a honest and true way to dialogue with its imperial and racist past. And the fact that there are those, and I am guilty of it as well, who have appropriated and adopted from the African-American uh, community and taken from it without giving anything back and then saying, it's now ours and F you if we're going to make more money off of it. And rock and roll does fit within that racial narrative. And it makes so much sense. It blew my mind to hear that point, but it makes so much sense that 
cool started as a survival mechanism because yeah. you didn't have the ability to express yourself because you fundamentally weren't free in any way. And then that was adopted as, oh, well, now I'm cool because I don't give a shit either. Yeah. And it's like, wow. I mean, so that blew my mind. And the history of rock and roll, as most histories with America, it's intertwined with our complex and tragic and often painful ways that we've dealt with race in this country. So I think that's just an amazing kickoff to this conversation. And rock and roll, like cool, is described frequently in the real world and also in Almost Famous as a lifestyle. Uh, it is something that people hold up as this aspiration. It's the lifestyle where you do a bunch of drugs, the chicks are great, maybe you throw a TV out of a hotel window, maybe you smash a guitar. Cool and rock and roll are this partnered lifestyle. And the characters that you just said who are striving the hardest to be cool, Russell and Jeff and the characters in the band, all the people who, if you're on the outside of this, Rock stars are the epitome of cool, right? To be a rock star, to be close to a rock star, to be almost famous is to be basking in the light of cool. And yet, those characters, Russell, when he's talking to William before they get their interview, he says, just make us look cool. Jeff Beebe, when he reads the Rolling Stone article before it's approved, says, is it that hard to make us look cool? So even these characters are still fundamentally insecure in their coolness, whereas characters like Lester Bangs and William can outright say, I'm uncool, I'm fundamentally uncool. And that, ironically, gives uh, more of a feeling of coolness to those characters who aren't working so hard. Uh, wow, okay, interesting point. I... I don't know if I fully agree with that. So let, me, let me ask you a follow-up here. Yeah. Because I was with you up until the end. Are you saying that because Lester and William are willing to admit that they're uncool, that that makes them cool? I don't know if I would go that far. I just like to point out the irony in the fact that they're able to at least acknowledge this, and the characters who we probably would have thought are the most cool are like, please just make us look cool. So I, I think the point is, is that William and Lester are just flat out not fucking cool. Oh, yeah, they're total squares. Yeah, and that they're never going to be cool, and they need to stop pretending and chasing this, this virtue of coolness because what is it worth anyway in the end? And the right. idea is that it's worth nothing. Yeah. That it's a bankrupt world, and the only currency is when you're trading a non-cool moment with another person. Yeah, which, which is essentially the, just equates to authentic emotion and authentic would, connection. Let me tell, can I tell you a personal story of yeah, coolness please. and and I understand where it comes from because I was in a band we played in mostly in Ocean County, New Jersey and almost exclusively for high school kids, maybe a few kids in like community colleges that were around there. I was 19. I was the drummer. One of my sticks snapped and I threw it and grabbed another one. After the show, we're packing everything up and it's not like this is a big venue. There's maybe a hundred kids there at most. This like boy, a 14 year old boy, I would imagine, maybe even younger, maybe a little older. I don't know. Comes up to me with the broken stick and says, could I'm a drummer. Could you sign this? And I signed it for him. And I'm like, I 
felt like a golden god. Oh, I'm sure you did. That's amazing. I felt so cool that there is some random kid out there who's now probably a grown man who had a drumstick with my name on it that was so inspired by my drumming that this kid wanted me to sign the drumstick. And that is where I think one of the crucial pieces to the scholastic breakdown of cool is the narcissism because my ego just got a huge boost. Now imagine that everywhere you go, everybody that you see is just like that kid who just wants to talk to you, wants to slap five, get an autograph, wants to tell you how great you are, how amazing you are. Imagine doing that every day of your life and how that has to just fundamentally rewire your brain chemistry, you know, and change you as a person. And we see in this movie these characters reconciling this. William gets changed just by being next to it. Yeah. Right? William gets seduced just by watching it happen to these others and getting to just witness and be there and write down what's happening and to develop somewhat of a friendship with a rock star was so intoxicating and so enticing that he goes on this whole journey with them and blows off his high school graduation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that that is where the industry of cool comes in. When it becomes about that adulation more than about striving for what I would say are aesthetic virtues. More on that later. Yeah, more on that later. Um, you know, as we're talking about this, th there's really only one character in the movie who I think epitomizes cool, who I think is effortlessly cool, and that's Penny Lane, uh, played beautifully by Kate Hudson. And she, I really think, is the heart and soul of this movie, despite, you know, watching this almost 20 years later and thinking, man, this would have been done so differently if it was made today. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about Penny Lane uh, and some of the amazing things about her and some of the sort of problematic things about her. But before that, let's just take a very quick sponsor break. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. So we are talking about Penny Lane, one of my favorite characters from this movie. Uh, Penny Lane, interestingly, like Lester Bangs, is based on a real character. There is a little bit of amalgamation happening. It's not a one-to-one uh, but she's based on a woman named Penny Trumbull, whose nickname, as she was making the rounds and going on tour with rock stars, became Penny Lane, because anytime she introduced herself, the rock stars would start to sing that Beatles song. And it's kind of hard to uh, avoid adopting that nickname. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. So she was the found the real Penny Lane Trumbull was founder of the Flying Garter Girls, which is a uh, group that traveled with rock bands as promoters. It's very similar to what we see in Almost Famous with the Band-Aids. They are not going to call themselves groupies, but there's probably, you know, some kind of a sexual relationship going on with these uh, these women and the rock stars that they want to be close with. But when Penny formed this group, it was with her and a couple of her girlfriends. The, the real Penny. The real Penny, okay. yeah. And she 
they all just kind of wanted to be close to rock stars. They wanted to know rock stars, but similar to the Band-Aids, this was not about wanting to be famous. This was not about wanting to be close to someone famous. They were there because of the music. They said, you have to love music to be a Flying Garter Girl. You have to stay in school. You have to get good grades, and you have to have a career goal of your own outside of wanting to just be close to rock stars. So very similar to what we see with the Band-Aids. When we meet Penny Lane in the movie, as she's describing uh, what their role is, she says, we don't have intercourse with these guys. We are here because of the music. We inspire the music. And that line, we inspire the music, is something that I want to spend a little bit of time with because we're the Midnight Myth and we wouldn't be us if we didn't uh, you know, make some reference to mythology. And what's happening here is she's willingly casting herself and her group of Band-Aids as muses. Um, and this goes back to Greek mythology uh, with the, uh, the nine muses usually that we see. They're minor goddesses of Greek and Roman mythology. Most people will recognize nine of them as Thalia, Calliope, Polyhymnia, Erato, Cleo, Euterpe, Terxicori, Melpomene, and Urania. Uh, each of them is attached to comedy or tragedy or lyric poetry or epic poetry or music or some particular form of art. And what they are there for is to inspire uh, art artists. They personify the arts and they provide artistic inspiration. So if you were an artist in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, you didn't have the talent. The muses spoke through you or sang through you or danced through you. Uh, and they're usually this, uh, the daughters of Zeus and uh, a goddess named Mnemosyne, who is the personification of memory. Damn, Zeus got around. He really did. Um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. He totally, um, man. Everyone is either a daughter or son of Zeus, man. That dude was not faithful. It is so gross. Um, but it's a pervasive idea. The, the Greek and Roman muse really continues to work its way uh, all the way through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Uh, and you'll see a lot of medieval and Renaissance poets uh, talking to a vague or unnamed muse or saying in their poetry that they, are, uh, they have the muse working through them. So if you think, uh, Shakespeare does this a lot. He's got a quote that's, oh, for a muse of fire from, I think, Henry V. Homer does it in the opening lines of the Odyssey and the Iliad. It's something that continues to work its way uh, through literature. But I want to get a little closer to what Penny Lane and the Band-Aids are, and I think that comes out of the muse tradition and into modernity. Because as we move away from the ancient world, and stop thinking of the muses as these real personifications of the arts, and we start ascribing talent and genius to individuals, which is more, you know, Renaissance enlightenment. Mozart was considered a genius. He wasn't someone who had genius muses sing through them. Uh, we start to see this phenomenon of artists claiming women as their muses, real flesh and blood women. And there is, you know, it's kind of crazy. If you go onto Wikipedia and look up the term muse, the disambiguation there, there's a full list of women throughout history, going back to at least Dante in the Middle Ages, who are best known for being the muse for Picasso, or best known for being the muse for um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. 
And a lot of times, these women are artists themselves. These women are also painters. These women are also writers. These women are also extremely talented, but they're best remembered for inspiring these genius men. Really interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I really like that. You know, the idea of the muse as a literal way in which an artist channels these um, these divine semi-goddesses, demigoddesses through them is a way to completely de-emphasize the individual artist as important. In ancient works of art, there are no signatures on them. So if you find a beautiful Roman statue and you're at the original, nobody knows who carved it because the artist itself is not important. It is the work of art that is important because the work of art's, art's job in the ancient world philosophically um, and its most lofty ideals, often not actual in reality, was to channel these muses literally so that you could find a piece of truth and that piece of truth could last and last longer than a, a person because the art itself would have some divinity in it, which we talked a lot about last week in the Mozart episode. Now, flash forward to modernity where we now have the idea of an individual and the individual artist and the artist needs to make a living. The artist needs to find a way to feed themselves, to clothe themselves. So the artist themselves becomes a part of a uh, infatuation where there are cults of personalities. There's fetishizing them as these great and amazing people. And this huge industry worth millions and millions of dollars around the individual artist emerges, which divorces itself from the actual product that they create. So great example of this in the movie, some textual analysis. What is the conflict within the band? The band's conflict is that Russell's the star and they all feel less cool because Russell is the star. Even though they decided that Jeff is the front man and Russell is the guitarist with mystique. How does William get himself in the good graces of the band? He calls Russell's guitar sound incendiary. And we see the conflict of Russell as a star greater than Stillwater the band. But what is one piece of guitar by itself? Barely a song. In particular, electric guitar in a rock band. Yeah. It requires a bass line. It requires a drum beat. It requires usually a rhythm guitar or an organ or piano. And lastly, it requires vocals. The song must be sung for it to be a song. And without it, there's nothing. So if you take a piece of one piece, I said this about the classical episodes that I don't know a ton about the classical structure, so I don't want to embarrass myself. Well, I spent most of yeah. my life making rock music. <laughs> this is and your wheelhouse. If you take one piece of a great rock song out, just one, it fumbles and collapses like a house of fucking cards, right? Every single layer in a perfect rock song needs to be precisely laid out in the exact way. Otherwise, it's not going to be the same. That's why if you go see a great cover band, right, and they're just fucking it up and just doing their own thing, you're like, oh, this isn't the song. And then you see a great cover band that really pulls something off and you're like, wow, I feel like I'm watching the original band. It's that hard to do. So my this long point here to say that uh, the conflict of the individual musician as a star divorces itself from the aesthetic product, 
which in the ancient world is the point. Now, in the modern world, it blurs. And what do we see with the literal muses in this? What do the muses actually love? And I think it's summed up very nicely at the end of the movie. When Russell is sitting there with the Band-Aid's name, I... Sapphire. Sapphire, thank you. Played by Firuza Balk. And Sapphire goes, these new girls, they don't love music. Just to love some silly little songs so much that it hurts. And she also tells Russell, hey, by the way, I know what you did. I know you lied. Everyone knows you lied. Meaning the muses know you lied. All the Band-Aids are like, we were there. He told the truth and you lied to make yourself look cool. The muse, the inspiration for this music, these beautiful women that inspired these artists are now pulling their power. And what what must Russell do? He must make amends. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, as you're describing sort of the de-emphasis of, uh, of the gods and the uh, you know, new emphasis on the individual and how the individual is tied and suffuses their art, uh, I think that the human cost of that often comes at the expense of the women. So as uh, the muses themselves, these uh, personifications of the arts, these goddesses stop being important or stop being literally prayed to to intercede, uh, real-life women start to lose their specificity, start to be considered little more than just inspiration for men. It's kind of where we get that awful cliche behind every great man is a woman. Well, when are we going to start calling the women great, right? When do we start saying that Zelda Fitzgerald deserved to have her stuff read? When are we start, going to start saying that Camille Claudel, the mistress of Auguste Rodin, who, who accused him of stealing a whole lot of her art, when do we start displaying her art and seeing her as a genius independent of that? And what I think is interesting about how Penny Lane and the Band-Aids are cast in this movie is they are willing muses. They say up front, we are here because of the music, we inspire the music. They want to be muses rather than to identify themselves as individuals. And we start to see them mostly as they are coupled with particular rock stars, Penny and Russell, you know, Polexia and Jeff. Uh, so I think there is a really interesting and complex and like not totally great uh, de-emphasis of the individual goals and motivations of these characters uh, that we know they had in real life. The real Penny Lane is now, she now owns a vineyard. You know, she makes wine. She had her whole own life plan outside of this. And once she was done with it, she was like, I'm going to go live my life now. Um, and I think the movie gets there, sort of, and I think the movie does a lot of work to characterize these characters and these individuals, but I think having them cast as voluntary muses is something that makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm glad that you brought that up, because I do think Penny Lane is the thematic glue and the performance and um, that makes this movie work. I think if this movie was just Russell and William not being able to get their interview down, it would not be as interesting. And what makes this movie so interesting is this like just totally amazing performance and this interesting character and this character who like both on a plot point ends up connecting because she meets William first 
And then she uh, introduces, helps get William to introduce to the band. She helps encourage him to continue to go on the tour. And they develop a very tight and close bond. They both admit to each other that they're full of shit when they're talking about their age. And it's Penny Lane that I think makes this movie work. So my question for you, you know, you said a few things that I just want to to revisit to, to get your take on it. One, if this movie was written today, it'd be different. I really want to know what you mean by that specifically. And then two, is Penny Lane a problem? Whew. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a really complex question. And as I said at the beginning of this episode, this is one of my favorite movies. Like it's probably top 10 for me. I love this movie deeply and always have. Um, and I love Penny Lane so much. I think she's a great character. And I think Kate Hudson plays her so well that I don't want to say she's a problem. And I do think she is uh, well characterized. I think she is a well-written woman character. Um, however, in 2019, we are living in the shadow of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And I think it's worth, uh, you know, just lightly touching upon that um, because... Could you define that? Yeah. Uh, so we talked about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl lightly in our Big Little Lies episode a while back. So if you want a little bit more detail, check that one out. But Manic Pixie Dream Girl is a term that was coined by Nathan Rabin for the AV Club in 2014, I believe, as he was writing a review of Elizabethtown which is a Cameron Crowe film, just like Almost Famous. So Manic Pixie Dream Girl is inextricably tied to Cameron Crowe, and the idea behind it is uh, MPDG is a woman character who is usually extraordinarily quirky, strange, or offbeat, who exists only through the male gaze. They usually uh, are characters who show up in movies that are male-centric, that are about closed-off men who need their horizons expanded, and they teach these men how to live fuller lives. So they come in like a whirlwind and then disappear when their work is done. They have no uh, outside motivation. They have no internal life, and they're very thinly drawn um, women characters who are basically only defined by their quirks and what they do for the lead male. Um, so big concept and the term was actually disowned by Nathan Rabin, uh, a few years ago because it, it took on a life of its own and it started to be really misappropriated to any quirky female character. And that's a problem for us to look at any woman character and say, oh yeah, she does something silly. So therefore she's a manic pixie dream girl is more reductive than what it was intended to do, which was just to point out when women characters were being drawn totally one-dimensional and only to serve men. So all that is a lot to say. Um, Penny Lane is often um, accused of being a manic pixie dream girl. And because it's so tied to Cameron Crowe, and because she's so quirky, and because she changes the life of William, and because she is mostly defined by her relationships to William and Russell, it's really hard to say that she's not. Um, I personally think that she does a lot to subvert the trope. I think because she is well-written, because she has an independent goal, even though it's kind of a flighty one to go to Morocco for a year, and because she doesn't end up with any of the men, because she exists outside of the male gaze and 
a lot of attention is called to what the male gaze does to her. I think she subverts the trope, but I think if it was written today, uh, I think we would get a stronger, more um, explicit subversion of that trope through Penny Lane. Does that make sense? Uh, sure. I, I mean, I threw that question on you. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it, it definitely makes sense. You know, it's, it's hard for me to speak to this specific subject um, really empirically would be the word That's or fine, yeah. dispassionately I'd say, because I see all women through the male gaze. Cause I'm a straight white man. <laughs> you Great. Know, like, Glad that like, you acknowledge that. <laughs> so every woman I've ever encountered has come from the male gaze. So it's the manic pixie dream girl. The idea of her character being problematic is not something that I picked up on the first maybe 10 times I watched this movie, it wasn't until it sat on the shelf for years yeah. and we revisited it for the Midnight Myth, having not seen it in a while, where I'm like, hmm, is there a problem here? And generally speaking, I think I think good writing and really fleshed out characters always wins the day. And in particular, when you have a really talented actor um, behind them. And I really think all of those things are at play. I think Penny Lane's the best part of this movie because of the way that she's written and the way that she's acted. Specifically, the idea that um, there are very few things in which Penny is not in control. Right. And there are very few times where the situation is leading her and her not leading the situation. Even when the really unceremoniously and really horribly when they trade the band-aids in a poker game. Yeah. You know, for Penny, 50 bucks and a case of Heineken, right, to humble pie gets sold to humble pie and all the band-aids go with humble pie. Uh, Penny doesn't right. Penny makes up her own mind and though, yeah, she gets really low and almost overdoses on quaaludes at the end of it. Penny goes, you know what I'm going to do? Fuck it. I'm actually going to Morocco and I'm going by myself. And before she goes to, there's a really great scene in Central Park that she has with William. And, you know, I'm sitting here making a list like, is Penny Lane problematic? What are all the problematic things about her that I can write down? And one of those is like, she won't share her age. She won't share her name. She is a creature of mystery. Uh, she refuses to, you know, give us any part of her authentic self and wouldn't a, a well-written female character give us an authentic part of herself. And then in that scene, she tells William her real name. You know, he gets to see the, the truth of her and we get to see the truth of her, which is divulged with total vulnerability and sincerity, uh, letting down that cool, uh, you know, facade for a moment. And she's extraordinarily self-possessed. And that's something that I really admire about her. And I think eventually puts her down as a, a strong and well-written character. Yeah, she wants to be a muse. She does want to be a divine spirit that can come in and inspire music and move on. And what we learn in this in this movie is that she's not, right? And she learns that she's not. She learns her limitations and she learns that she's a human. She learns that her relationship with Russell is not good for her, right? She chooses to to guide Russell back to William rather than to herself. She chooses to... Um, take her trip to Morocco on her own terms. And I think that the, the last scene of the movie is Penny Lane going to Morocco. Yeah. So if there's any 
you know, misunderstanding on who Cameron Crowe making this wanted this movie to really be about. The last scene is Penny, Penny getting out of rock and roll, Penny going to Morocco and starting her next adventure and doing it on her own terms, free from the the men of William and the men of Russell. And I think that that is very inspiring to me, even from 2019, um, you know, compared to 2000 when it was written. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear other people's thoughts on this because I think it's a complex question and Almost Famous is being uh, remounted as a musical in San Diego or San Francisco right now. I forget where. Um, And I know that they made some interesting changes to the character. So I I would love to know, you know, how this character gets revisited today um, and what people think about, you know, who she was back in the year 2000. Very cool. All right. So I've got one more bit. I don't know. We're really pushing up on time, but I'd like to introduce what I think is the philosophical core of the movie. I think that's great. And uh, I'm going to do my best to do this as quickly and succinctly, but there are some big concepts here. So hopefully everyone's got some room in their brains because we're going to get really philosophical. Yeah. All right. I think that this movie is in conflict with two different ethical ideals of philosophy. The first is going to be virtue ethics. The second one is going to be hedonism, or we can say even easier, I think the academic structure of cool, narcissism, irony, hedonism, and detachment, right? So on one hand, there's the industry of cool. The other hand, there's virtue ethics. And I think two characters teach the main protagonist, William, the value of virtue ethics. The first is his mother. And what virtue is she really trying to teach him? In the simplest terms, it's law, the virtue of law, studying the laws that humans have made. That's the highest good that you can go go with. The best people in the world are the ones that understand law, and she's trying to teach the virtue of law. She tells other things, too. She sees him teaching him about how to analyze a complex film such as To Kill a Mockingbird. We see her give him a lesson on uh, Livia, a uh, the wife of Augustus and Roman history. So we see her trying to impart these classical, traditional, more conservative virtues. Though I don't yeah. use conservative in contemporary, you know, what is a conservative versus what is a, a liberal. I mean, conservative in the idea that these ideas that have existed for a long time that preserve and should be sustained and should be respected. And she wants these virtues to be at his core. On the other hand, we have Lester, the journalist, a rock and roll, more progressive, who wants to teach him the virtue of honesty and that the way to be a great writer of music about music and close to music is to make sure that you are honest at all times and in all of your dealings, in particular in your work. Your work must be honest, otherwise it won't matter. And he warns him against the powers of hedonism. They're going to buy you drinks. They're going to meet They're going to introduce you to girls. There's nothing controversial about you. And it's going to be a wild, crazy ride. And he warns him, stay away from the industry of cool. It will be seductive. On the other hand, on the hedonism, the cool side, we have both Penny Lane and Russell. And Penny Lane and Russell are trying to introduce him to this other world where you can have what you want when you want. You can live in a fantasy. You can uh, party all night. You can travel and see the world. We see the big conflict when Russell finally talks to his mother and his mother just cuts him to the core. Right. And just like tears apart this veneer of cool. And we what does 
What does Russell do? He goes, yes, ma'am. He becomes super unfucking cool. Yeah. Well, she says, uh, I know all about your Valhalla decadence, right? So she is calling out the hedonism. And she spent most of the first part of this movie saying, don't take drugs, adhering to that very specific law that, like, hedonism is bad, stay away from it, be Atticus Finch. And then when we see the uh, epitome of this sort of extraordinarily virtuous and authentic person come up against Russell, it's like he is completely annihilated. He is just destroyed by her, her logic and her arguments. And let's, so let's take a little bit moment because I do a little moment, pardon me, because I think the, the, the crux of the moral conflict does land on the side of virtue ethics. We've mentioned this. We've talked about it briefly before. What is virtue ethics and how can we understand it through this work of art? So virtue ethics, it gets its start from Plato, like many things in ancient Greece, and then was further adapted by Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a book called Ethics in which he outlined virtue ethics. It's considered the kicking off point, the real first virtue ethics as the main way for people to understand. Ethics is about understanding one fundamental question. How do I live a good and happy life? What does it mean to live a good and happy life? The industry of cool, the hedonists say, go after your pleasures at all costs. And as long as you are maximizing your pleasures in your life, you're living the good and happy life. Virtue ethics, and Aristotle had to combat that in ancient Greece because hedonism started from ancient Greece. We talked a lot about the Dionysian pageants, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, like hedonism was a really powerful force in ancient Athens in particular, which was a slave society where there's a group of men that have all of the wealth, all of the leisure, and plenty of them just pursued their pleasures. And Aristotle was responding to the hedonism of that time and asking for virtue ethics. So I'm going to read a little bit of a quote. It's dense. It's from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And folks, if you need a good like refresher on philosophy... I go to that website all the fucking time. It's fantastic if you want to try to understand quickly what a piece of philosophy is. Awesome. But so virtue ethics differs from other ethical systems in a few key ways. Here's the quote. Quote, a virtue is an excellent trait of character. It is a disposition well entrenched in its possessor. Something that, as we say, goes all the way down. Unlike a habit such as being a tea drinker. To notice, expect, Value, feel, desire, choose, act, and react in certain characteristic ways. To possess a virtue is to be a certain sort of person with a certain complex mindset, end quote. So at the end of the day, if I want to do something, and let's say I want to tell the truth, if I'm telling the truth because I think that's going to advantage me some way over someone else, if I'm telling the truth because I fear the consequence of telling a lie, if I'm telling a truth because I just think that's the rule to tell the truth, I'm not practicing virtue ethics. Virtue ethics says that there's a virtue, it's called honesty, and you strive for it deep in your bones. It's a 
core part of you, who you are as an individual, that you radiate honesty as much as and as often as you can. People who practice virtue ethics often fail to meet the virtues. But the idea is that there's a thing, a characteristic, a trait. It's called honesty. And you must pursue honesty at all times because the only way to live a good and happy life is to be honest with yourself and with those that you interact with. Got it? Yeah, yeah. So where do we see virtue ethics in this film? So we see virtue ethics and the ultimate virtue ethic is in the idea of honesty. And I do think that's the virtue that William is struggling with and trying to learn. And this culminates thematically in a few points. One, there's Penny Lane not being honest with herself and her relationship with Russell. And she almost kills herself over the pain of realizing that Russell would ignore her in order to favor time with his girlfriend than spend time with her when she thought she was the muse. At the crux of that is a dishonest relationship. Russell's been dishonest with Penny. Penny's being dishonest with herself, right? And it almost ends her life. That's how it is. So that's the cost of hedonism. Pursuing your pleasure at all costs. Well, if it leads you to suicide, are you leaving the good and happy life? Right. Fuck no. Other ways in other moments, the plane, it's starting to go down. And, and that plane first starts to go down. Russell looks excited. He looks in happy. And then suddenly when they all realize they're going to die, all of them start to confess. They start to tell the truth. Russell admits he actually loves the people in this band. The band, the lead singer admits, yeah, well, we resent you. And I slept with your girlfriend. The manager, uh, Jimmy Fallon's the new manager, admits that he may have murdered someone Oof. with his car. He has no idea. Right? The drummer, only line in the whole movie, I'm gay, comes out and admits that. And then it ends with William channeling the spirit of his mother, saying, you're all full of shit. You thought this was for the fans, and you threw your number one fan away. And I actually care about her as a person. Yeah, I'm the one who showed up at her hotel room because I was worried about her. And it turns out that ability that he has to authentically connect with people saved someone's life. Absolutely. So we see honesty come up again in the theme shortly thereafter when William is talking to the Rolling Stone. And William has been dishonest with the Rolling Stone about his age, about his experience, about what he is doing. And they think he has written a complete fabrication of a story. They think he has been dishonest because he has been. So they dismiss his entire piece to go with something else. And then ultimately at the end, you know, we have Russell and William together and finally allowing themselves to have an honest moment between them where he gets to look someone in the eye and say, just tell me why you love music, man. And the common denominator here, the only thing that allows the scene on the plane where everyone reveals their authentic selves, the only thing that allows Russell to call Rolling Stone and tell them every word that William wrote was true, the only thing that allows them to come face to face in a teenager's bedroom and have a conversation about music is losing their cool. Cool is the antithesis of authenticity. 
If you are detached, if you are ironic, if you are narcissistic, and if you are hedonistic, you are closing yourself off from the opportunity to authentically connect with another person. And Russell's a great example of this because with all of the cool that he tries to maintain, uh, the thing he wants most in the world, as he confesses when they you know, leave after the t-shirt incident, is to connect with something real. He wants to go to a party and meet some real Topeka people. He has to take acid to do it, but he wants authenticity. And what we see in the end with Stillwater, too, that final montage where they're playing up on stage again. They've gotten back to the soul of the band in the bus Doris. No more airplanes. They uh, He kisses Jeff, right? Doesn't he kiss Jeff on the face while they're on he stage? He kisses him right on the cheek. Yeah, and it's it's beautiful. It's like now that we have stopped trying to be fucking cool, we can be authentic, we can be real, we can be ourselves, we can be honest. And for William, this this uh, sense of like these two great titans that he's being pulled between. On one hand, the rock stars, fame, celebrity, music, all of these things that he cherishes and loves. And on the other hand, family, something that is fundamentally uncool. He has to take that odyssey. He has to leave the family home. He has to get the spiritual education in hedonism to realize that what he wants more than anything in the world is to just hang out with his mom and sister and, <laughs> his ask, <own> bed. <laughs> and ask a freaking rock star, what do you love about music? The uncoolest question you could ever ask, but something that cuts to the very core, the very authentic self that Russell has been hiding. Absolutely, because Russell needs to stop loving himself and stop loving the sound of his own guitar and yeah. start loving music again. Yeah. It's telling the Topeka scene that Russell wants something real. And the very first thing he does is he just starts pounding alcohol and acid. Way fucked up of a combination to pound. Yeah, oh my God. And has a completely synthetic moment. And in the end, when he is standing on the roof, calling himself a golden god and says, my last words are, I'm on drugs. And everyone goes crazy. And then William's like, "Eh, you might want to do a little better, buddy. And he goes, oh, how about this? I dig music. People are like, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not about the music. And they want the synthetic. They want the, uh, the cool I'm on drugs instead of the authentic. I dig music. And that is the core of what's wrong with celebrity culture here in almost famous. And if you are going to pursue a career in the creative arts, you have to ask yourself, okay, am I doing it for money and fame or am I doing it because I have a value. I find such value in these arts that I want to channel this art and I want to be able to (laughs) share this art with people, you know, and hopefully, yeah, be able to feed my family and be nice to have a big house. And all of that is great and very cool. But at the end of the day, what are the values that you're espousing through your art? And this is a story of characters losing that core, I would say, Aristilian uh, value or virtue ethics, pardon me, in favor of hedonism and having to find it, having to break down the bankrupt currency of a cool world and just be unfucking cool. You know, I think here at the end of this conversation, the thing that I have learned the most from Almost Famous, the moral of that movie for me comes down to just a couple of words it's hip to be square. <laughs> <laughs> and until next time, guys. Be kind. Be kind.